X-Ray. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. I'm Jefferson Smith from Portland, Oregon. It is Wednesday, June 17th. Today, back in the day, June 17, 1892, the Bull Run Timberland Reserve, covering 142,080 acres, was established by presidential proclamation. It was the first forest reserve in the state. Seven years before that, June 17, 1885, a new statue arrived in the New York Harbor. A poem was written by American poet Emma Lazarus in order to raise money for the construction of a pedestal for that statue. That poem was cast into that pedestal. That poem was the new Colossus. Not like the brazen giant of Greek fame, with conquering limbs astride from land to land. Here at our sea-washed sunset gate shall stand a mighty woman with a torch whose flame is imprisoned lightning, and her name, Mother of Exiles. From her beacon hand glows worldwide welcome, her mild eyes command. The airbridge harbor that Twin Cities frame, keep ancient lands your storied pomp, cries she with silent lips. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free, the wretched refuse of your teeming shore. Send these the homeless tempest toss to me, I lift my lamp beside the golden door. Today on The Local, we'll start with your quick six. We'll have a COVID-19 listener question and answer session, and Noel Brown and I sit down with Rekia Adams to talk about community wealth from our partner podcast, Better Money. First up, today's quick six local rundown. Two major resignations. Rod Underhill, District Attorney of Multnomah County, has announced that he will step down on July 31st, five months before his term ends. That could make way for Mike Schmidt, who was elected DA last month, to start early, if the governor will appoint him early, on August 1st, instead of waiting until next year. In an email to his staff, Underhill said he strongly believes we need to reject, and I am quoting, racism, bigotry, and hatred. Still quoting, George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, and Breonna Taylor should not have had to die to cause us collectively to rise up and shout from our streets that Black Lives Matter and demand essential and lasting systemic change. He said he was up to the challenge, but that it made more sense for Schmidt to take on the job early. And the mayor of Gresham is stepping down after 18 years. Mayor Shane Bemis announced on Tuesday on Facebook that his resignation will be effective today, June 17th at 9 a.m., His resignation comes days after both the Gresham police chief and city manager announced their impending retirements amid unprecedented closures brought on by the coronavirus pandemic and nationwide civil protest. Bemis had been a rumored candidate for the Republican nomination for governor in 2016, but decided not to run. Bemis, who is also a restaurant owner, husband and father, said he is stepping down as mayor to focus on his business. Governor Kate Brown has called the Oregon legislature into special session. It is official. She announced that session will start on June 24th. We'll pass legislation regarding law enforcement oversight. Those are her words, specifically police accountability laws. They'll also discuss coronavirus and adopt some executive orders. Here are some of the police reform policies lawmakers will be discussing making it more difficult for arbitrators to overturn law enforcement discipline. We talked to Senator Lou Frederick about that one. Creating a statewide database of police discipline, as Georgia and Maine have and other states have started to do recently. Putting the Oregon Attorney General in charge of use of force investigations. Requiring law enforcement to intervene and report when colleagues use unreasonable force. This is the so-called duty to intervene policy. To demilitarize the police and to ban law enforcement from using chokeholds. 
Advocates have started working over the last 72 hours to expand that list, which initially might have been one to three things and now might become an omnibus package of a lot of reforms. This special session was originally planned for the state budget and other policies. Republicans have said that's what they want to focus on. This special session was originally planned for the state budget and other policies, as listeners to the local have heard. But in the wake of two weeks of protests, the governor said the budget can wait for a special session later in the summer. The legislature needs a two-thirds quorum in each chamber to conduct business. Some question will be, will the Republicans show up? Legislative leaders are still working out how the legislature will hold the session amid coronavirus social distancing guidelines. Stay tuned for that one. Your daily dose of coronavirus updates. In yesterday's Quick 6, we reported the total number of known cases to be 5,820. Today, 6,098, making it the record daily total. The Oregon Health Authority announced 278 new cases of COVID-19 and two more deaths, bringing the total death count to 182 confirmed. An outbreak in Union County has now resulted in a total of 240 cases. Long-term care facilities will begin testing their workers and residents starting June 24th. Nursing facilities account for about 50% of the outbreaks at long-term care facilities in Oregon, despite representing less than 20% of the total number of facilities. The state unveiled this plan for patients that have more than five long-term residents. It will be a two-phase plan. Phase 1, June 24th to September 30th. Every one of the roughly 680 facilities in Oregon will test each member of its staff and will offer testing to each resident. Testing will begin at facilities with memory care units first, followed by facilities without memory care. Memory care is the highest level of care for folks dealing with challenges like Lewy body dementia and Alzheimer's. And testing will begin in the most affected areas. Here those are Multnomah, Washington, Clackamas, Yamhill, Marion, and Polk counties, before then moving to other counties. Phase two, that begins in October, October 1st. Staff will then be required to be tested at least once per month. Facilities will develop plans on how they'll continue to monitor and test residents and staff. Mayor of Gold Beach, that's in the southwest of Oregon, quit from the board of a nonprofit after an inflammatory email was released. Mayor Carl Popoff has now stepped down from his position on the Oregon Coast Community Action Board of Directors. It's a charitable organization that includes services such as the South Coast Food Share and South Coast Head Start. He's been the mayor for 16 years in Gold Beach. In response to an anti-racism Black Lives Matter email sent from the head of that nonprofit, Popoff popped off as such. With all due respect, you can shove your racism bandwagon. I am so sick of having people throwing up racism slash white privilege at every turn. You want to know what is hurting blacks? The welfare system. No dads at home. And you know what? It's also hurting whites and American Indians. Black lives matter don't matter to black lives matter people. He went on to say that sensitivity training will not slow prejudice and said, sorry, dear lady, but I already know how to treat other people. I found that out through Christ. Gold Beach scheduled a city council meeting to discuss. Might be more on that story to come. Journalists have been injured while covering the Portland protests. At least two Portland journalists were slammed, shoved, or somehow injured by a member of the Portland Police Bureau. Both reporters, one from the Portland Tribune and one from the Oregonian, said they identified themselves as members of the press. Beth Nakamura from the Oregonian said she had her hands up, her ID press pass out, and her camera in her hand. Mayor Ted Wheeler called Nakamura's account of being attacked extremely concerning. In a statement, Commissioner Chloe Udaley said she believed journalists' rights had been violated. She called on Wheeler and new police chief Chuck Lavelle to intervene. A petition circulated by a group of Portland-based reporters asking the mayor's office to do more than take in complaints. The petition notes heavy-handed tactics displayed over the weekend on reporters from local media outlets and independent reporters. Those independent reporters are often the ones sticking around late into the night as police clear protesters from downtown. Some good news in culture. Southern Oregon University is going to offer a transgender study certificate. 
The U.S. Supreme Court ruled that workplace discrimination law protects workers who are gay or transgender. Now another piece of evolving LGBTQ equality movements will begin at Southern Oregon University. SOU's Gender, Sexuality, and Women's Studies Department decided to create a program specifically focused on transgender issues. And Portland Parks and Rec is restarting its annual free lunch and play program on Monday. The program provides free meals and play events in parks throughout the city. The program will be part of an expanded effort by the city and area school districts to provide food security in the wake of the pandemic. Who said there's no such thing as a free lunch? All it takes is everybody to band together and make sure we have a society, pay some taxes, and then respond in the wake of a pandemic. And then there are some free lunches. And that's today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. Here's Emily Gilliland with What's Next. Thanks so much, Jefferson. As we await the state's decision on reopening Multnomah County, here are Dr. Jacqueline Bernard, Professor of Neurology at OHSU, and Family Nurse Practitioner Mandy Ruscher from Outside In to answer your COVID-19 questions. And it is time for us to have another X-ray Q&A on COVID-19. And today we are joined by Dr. Jacqueline Bernard, Professor of Neurology at OHSU, and Family Nurse Practitioner Mandy Ruscher from Outside In. As a reminder, both of them are speaking as their own human beings, not there here to represent their organizations. Jackie, welcome to you. Well, good morning. How are you doing? It is nice to hear your voice. You prefer Dr. Bernard. Do you prefer Jackie? How would you like to be addressed? You know, anything that is kind would be fine. I'm going Dr. Bernard. <laughs> uh, Mandy. Works. Uh, Mandy, welcome and good morning to you. Thank you. Good morning. Well, let's start. Jackie, first tell us just a little bit about your practice and how you and how you're wrestling with COVID-19 now, even in the workplace. And maybe it's not much in the workplace, but all of us are dealing with it in the workplace somehow. Well, um, as everyone knows, on March 8th, uh, the governor declared a state of emergency to address the spread of COVID-19 in Oregon. And consequently, at OHSU, we went into a modified operations phase, um, which changed entirely how we function and we've all not just OHSU but the entire state and nation and world has been sort of you know building this airplane as we've been applying it Um, what we've primarily been focusing on is safety and how to take care of everyone in the most safe way based on what we know at the time Uh, so the the first thing that I think that was really symbolic for us was the medical students were sent home Um, and that was sort of a wake-up moment Um, and then we began to do all kinds of daily emergency planning and tried to figure out the gaps uh, on a daily basis how to proceed in, in a safe way and still take care of everyone including our staff our patients and do this in a way that then allowed us to plan for what may come uh, into our hospital. Mandy, how are you wrestling with this at Outside In? Obviously, you're working with populations that are particularly impacted or at least impacted in particular ways. It's been quite interesting. Um, We've had the discussions about telemed in the past, and the assumption is because we work with so many marginalized populations that it would be really hard for someone, for example, experiencing homelessness to get on a phone or a Zoom visit. But that has um, not proven to be the case. People have been really resourceful, and we've been able to continue a lot of visits, um, you know, most over the phone. And we're still seeing people for urgent cases, but 
like Jackie says, it's, it's changed completely our operations and just we've had to make very special considerations about who we can see in clinic, who we can, um, you know, ask to wear, you know, certain PPE, what PPE we have. So it's, it's a challenge for any small clinic. Um, but, yeah, with our population, the challenges, I think, are a little bit uh, more interesting and um, you know, we, it's a little bit harder to implement all the recommendations, but we're doing the best we can. Either of you want to weigh in on masks. The CDC and the WHO continue to seem to have conflicting guidance. WHO seems to say, wear a mask if you yourself have symptoms or if there's a loved one who has symptoms or is at risk. CDC says, no, masks might not protect you because things will get in your ears and you'll adjust your mask, but could help other people from getting your droplets. Either of you want to weigh in on that. I don't want to call it controversy, but maybe inconsistency. I'm I'm happy to talk about that. There there are many issues related to masks, but there are differences in how you might want to think about masks in the healthcare setting versus out in the world at large. Um, early on, and one thing I just want to mention is, despite all the chaos that's been happening in the world, the scientific community and the medical community have been sharing knowledge real time and making all this information available for free. Um, so I would really encourage people to look at things like the New England Journal of Medicine um, or even go to PubMed and look at these articles that have become available for free. Um, So early on in this um, pandemic, there was an article that came out um, from China um, looking at different kinds of masks um, and a few had already been done suggesting that um, standard surgical masks really did make a difference compared to cloth masks, that cloth masks were almost useless in a healthcare setting. That is different from the world at large. And although cloth masks and things that people might wear do not filter particles like an N95 would or a surgical mask would, um, if everyone or a majority of people wear masks, it may make a difference in terms of both directions, what I might give you and what you might give me. But the greatest benefit, perhaps, some people have said about masks is the psychological barrier, and that's good and bad, right, Jefferson? I I don't want people to feel distance from me, and yet this is what we must do right now. And the mask is a psychological reminder to each of us that there's something going on. This is not business as usual. There's a reason that we can't stand close to each other and the mask is more a visual or a psychological reminder when we wear them outside. But it also says, I'm caring about you. I don't want you to potentially get something from me that you will give to your loved ones. So it's it's more a behavioral maneuver when we wear them in the outside world. In the healthcare setting, we're doing this because we truly understand that the kinds of masks we use in a healthcare setting filter particles that are quite small and do have an impact in terms of infection to a patient and from a patient. Thank you both, by the way, for coming on there and talking about it. We want to do our part about information sharing, and that's my prelude to this question. How do you suggest we deal with misinformation? Right now, we just have a study from Carnegie Mellon University that says that it found that 62% of the top 1,000 retweeters on the topic of the coronavirus are bots. They're run by, who knows, bot farms. 
that we, of course, have a president who is saying stuff that is either contrary or irrelevant to fact. Uh, how do you wrestle with that personally? How do you talk about it with your colleagues? And what do you suggest we do about it other than trying to share the correct information? Uh, Dr. Bernard? Well, I'll, I'll jump in on that one. We um, both of us had forwarded a series of websites that are really things that I believe that listeners can look to uh, as a source of truth. And I think really important for people in Oregon is the Oregon Health Authority site. Um, that talks about reopening criteria and all kinds of public health indicators. Um, so I, we've um, sent you that maybe you can post on the website, Jefferson, a series of websites that are sources of truth. We believe in that are updated and I would put Oregon Health Authority uh, on the top of that. Um, I, I would like to also maybe quote something that was ascribed to Marie Curie, um, if I can find this, and that is, now is the time to understand more so that we can fear less. Um, and I think to your point, we need to look for sources of truth um, and in that way we can inform ourselves so that we can proceed out of this cave. We've all been inside, we've been following the rules very, very well and have this wonderfully flat curve here in Oregon. Um, but I think going to sources of truth uh, like the Oregon Health Authority, etc., cetera, um, would be a better way to inform yourself. And again, as I had mentioned, um, things like the New England Journal of Medicine all their information is available for free to anyone. And although they seem, some of these scientific journals might seem a, a bit um, technical for people, uh, the information is really important real time. And so I think th uh, there are several that um, Mandy and I had provided that you may want to um, take a look at and post on your, on your website. We're going to post on social media. We're also going to put it up on the blog. There's just a wealth of data here, folks. Really really impressive uh, list. We might add to this uh, a couple of my favorites just on tracking the overall trends include uh, include COVID19.healthdata.org, the thing put together by University of Washington, and also the uh, the New York Times have been doing some great tracking. But yeah, you've got the you've got the Department of Health from the state of Washington on here, COVIDactnow.org. You got Canada's site, of course, the CDC site, the Harvard.edu site. You've got mental health resources on here. Uh, you've got a child life. Uh, you've got childlife.org uh, resources for children and families. Thank you so much for this really enriching rich set of resources. I'll tweet it out. You can follow me at Jefferson D. Smith. We'll also set it out on the X-Ray Twitter, and we'll put it up on the X-Ray blog. Uh, Dr. Bernard and Mandy Rusher, thank you so much for being with us on The Morning Show. I hope we have a chance to talk again. It's really valuable to hear from folks who actually know what they're talking about. Well, thank you. Thank you for giving us the opportunity, Jefferson. Mandy, yeah, thanks. Yeah, thank you very much. X-Ray has a wide array of podcasts, including the local Today, we want to share an interview with Rakaya Adams, Chief Investment Officer from Meyer Memorial Trust from the podcast, Better Money. Noelle Bram and Jefferson Smith talk with Rakaya about the slave economy and what we can do about it now. You can find Better Money alongside the local on xraypod.com and your favorite podcast platform. Welcome to Better Money, a show that points an x-ray at folks driving capital and driving change. People working for better money. I'm Noelle Brown, and I come from the for-profit world. And I'm Jefferson Smith, and I come from the nonprofit world. We're joined today by Rakaya Adams, an athlete-turned-law student, lawyer-turned-money manager. 
now most days she'll be found at Meyer Memorial Trust as the chief investment officer. I want to get to the heart of the matter, at least one of the hearts of the matter. In a recent keynote, you said, we have recreated the economic structure of slavery without the moral stain of actually owning people. Explain that. I meant exactly those words. We have recreated the economic benefits of the slave economy without having to own people. You can exploit labor. You can underhouse people. You can destabilize families to the transfer of wealth from one group to another. You can underpay women historically, structurally, permanently for equal work. And essentially what we're doing is taking wealth away from some groups and delivering it to one to another group, right, to the same group, in fact. And so we're seeing um, that economic wealth transfer happen at a massive, massive scale. It just We're just recreating the economy that was there when we started in this country. What do we do about it? I know that's a ridiculously broad question. You can choose only the first hundred things or the first three. So this is a strange thing to say as the village spinster. I don't have children, and I'm just a nosy middle-aged lady who runs around town bossing people around. But the way that I see it, especially in Oregon, what we're doing is creating an education system that is educating some people for third-world conditions and to work for the newcomers who will come here to drive our economy in the next hundred years. And so the only way out of that is to educate people pre-K through college, to fully educate them, to commit our economy to educating people, to to create a bias for the future in all of our budgeting and decision-making. Um, that, that's where I would start. There are a lot of things we have to do. Um, the second thing I would do is to really discourage us from thinking about housing as, as an equity investment. Right now, when people invest in housing and they need double-digit returns, the consequence of that is that they're extracting as much from renters as possible. And the, the, the net effect of that is a wealth transfer. I think we need to think about housing investing as, as more like a bond than an equity. And how do you give it as much security as bonds? Well, there are two ways. We would love a municipal sponsor to provide cash flow guarantees to the bondholders. That would be ideal. In that scenario, a, a city government or metro wouldn't have to actually put out the cash for, for the construction, but they could guarantee cash flow below a certain amount to mm-hmm. ensure that the bondholders have relatively low risk. I mean, that would be the ideal mm-hmm. situation, partnership between private capital and municipal yeah. governments. It's like co-signing on your mortgage mm-hmm. as a first-time home buyer, and you get someone yeah. to help back you up, but you're really the one putting the down. Right. Mm-hmm. I think we need to do that at a scalable level, though. The rub in the Northwest Territories is that we like to focus on small projects that are idiosyncratic and unique. The reality is for housing, we need a scalable, massive solution, right? We need a billion-dollar REIT backed by a half-billion-dollar guarantee. So I just think we have to really face the scale issue. Maybe I'm asking a dumb question or maybe an obvious one, but when you when you saw that where you were sought-after law student, had a harder time finding a job as a principal, what did you chalk that up to? What, who were they hiring? And did you notice any pattern in who they weren't hiring? Race and gender. So the difference was you can look at our deals, but you can't run our money. You can run the deals, but the wealth won't accru- accrue to you, right? Mm-hmm. Um, or we don't want your for- your voice to be the authority. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's something deeply unsettling about certain voices having control of capital. Mm-hmm. Over time, what I see when people are really uncomfortable with me, it's that black people and black women in particular have been the objects of our economy. 
right? Our labor, our consumer habits, our bodies. And to hear my voice as an authority as the subject, not the object, is actually kind of, it's jarring to people. And I've learned to not back off of that. But I think at that time, I just hit a filter and the filter was filtering people like me out. So then, you know, if there was a young Rakaya listening to you right now, and she just finished top of her class, Stanford MBA, what advice would you give her? Keep going. Keep going. Because the hustle in this game is one, they don't have to take it from you if you abandon it. Mm-hmm. And two, the people who just get back up are the ones ultimately mm-hmm. who who get ahead. Mm-hmm. And and I think people get wounded or they're hurt and they think that's the end and it's mm-hmm. not. They just keep limping along. Right? Put on some lip gloss and yeah. buy a pair of high heels and just like do it. Keep going. I want to pivot to your gig. How do you apply the values of the foundation or maybe personal values mm-hmm. to investment decisions? With uh, how much money are you managing, and and how do you, you know, it's the larger pool of money than is the grant capital, right? The, right. the foundation gives away some money and then invests a lot of money. Right. How do you overlap those values? A lot of people think foundations are about grant making. They're not. Their purpose is philanthropy, but the business is investing. So the first thing is our largest impact, by far, is how we manage our money, not how we give it away. Mm-hmm. So that's the first thing. The other thing is when you get to billion-dollar pools of capital, you're not allocating dollars. It's not money anymore. Mm-hmm. At that point, it's like energy. And I can direct energy at things and ideas and opportunities that matter. Mm-hmm. right? So we might put in $100 million. But if people who are watching me and see our top-level performance want to replicate our performance, then they replicate what we invest in. They they uh, mimic our values. And so what what I'm really trying to do is shine light on ideas and concepts that matter to debunk some of the most entrenched ideas in investing um, to leave a bunch of people in my dust. More, more than to kick dirt in their eyes, more to have people replicate what we're doing because they want to be excellent, not necessarily because they share the values. So here's an example. Um, when I started Meyer, our environmental program officers really lobby me hard to sell our oil position. So most portfolios hold oil in the commodities portfolio, and commodities are options mm-hmm. or futures. They're not the actual oil, right? So if you if you own oil futures, our environmental staff is like, are, can we with integrity say that we're trying to mitigate these environmental issues if you're investing in oil, you know, in oil sands? And you make more if the price goes up in the future. Right. So they lobby me, and I, I tried to ignore them. To be honest, I, I wasn't really wanting to deal with it. But on a run through Forest Park, I could hear the water trickling through the water table and I could smell the water in the air. And I thought, if I can't, if I can't figure out a way to invest in clean water from a place like this, I don't know who the heck can. So four years ago, they really pushed me to learn clean water investing better. And that single trade, the arbitrage between oil investing and clean water Mm -hmm. from 2014 to today has probably been the most successful investment that I've made. Mm -hmm. So it's not just the values, it's the combination of what kinds of strengths we have here socially Mm -hmm. and experts that I can draw on for information and ideas plus the values, right? And then, you know, know, using your ovaries, your ovaries to 
actually do it, right? Because it's one thing to know that you need to do it. It's another thing to have the nerve to risk capital. Mm-hmm. Um, and stick with it. And stick with it. Because mm-hmm. it may, you may be early. Mm-hmm. Right. I, was, I wasn't sure when we made that trade. So what do you see as a next milestone for you? Next milestone. Well, we had a wonderful year of performance in 2017. I haven't seen the full year of 2018 yet, but it will come out soon. Um, so in terms of work on the performance, to the extent that we string together many years of exceptional performance, then I think people will just copy what we're doing mm-hmm. and they'll see the numbers. So that is mm-hmm. important to me. Um, I have a few people on my team who are amazing. Um, when I joined Meyer, there were two trustees in particular who I'm pretty sure I was their pick uh-huh. for my job. Orcelia Forbes. Did you ever know Orcelia Forbes? Yeah. And George Puentes, who was a business person from Salem. And when I got the job, they, they basically said to me, look, we don't want you to aspire to stay here. We want you to use this platform to do something bigger, something else. Orcelia passed away a year and a half ago, and George retired from our board. But I would say that for them, I, I certainly want to Mm. I want to meet their expectation mm-hmm. for doing something bigger and taking the opportunity and opening the doors for the people who are behind me. So I have some fantastic people on my team. So I'd say another milestone will be getting them up to the next level of excellence so that mm-hmm. if I get hit by a bus, they can run things. Um, the next milestone for me is getting comfortable using my voice. I squirm a little bit right now yeah. with it. <laughs> I do. I, I'm not comfortable with... Um, With what audience? What I wanted two years ago was to be a well-regarded middle-aged lady. I just wanted to be liked. But in the last two years, working on the Albina Vision work and sharing the OIC... Oregon Investment Council, yes? Yes. um, I've hit the wall of getting past wanting people to like me. Mm. And there are some things that I want to get done, even if they don't like me for mm-hmm. it. And that is still uncomfortable for me, that that women are so socialized yeah. to to be liked and to, like, not bring down the hammer on mm-hmm. people. Um, I'm not quite there yet. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's not that I doubt myself. It's that I just... Don't I don't want people to not like me. I, I guess in some mm-hmm. ways I don't want to be disinvited from the privilege cookout. Mm. Um, I don't want... I wrestle with using my voice in um, rebuke and in anger. Mm. So for the emotional range that I can occupy as a black woman in response to things that are challenging is I can either be earnest, informed, or funny. Mm. But I haven't been able to make the jump to being able to be authoritative or angry Hmm. and so sort of wrestling with that Hmm. um and then so there's a a group of investors who want to bring baseball to portland and they wanted to bring it to a community that we're trying to revive that was the historic black community and in um that conversation i was one of the first people to publicly say no i don't want that and i didn't think anyone was listening really and then it shows up in the newspaper and then all these men are hiding behind my skirt and my afro because I came out and said, no, I don't want it. So nobody else really needed to say anything. And, and I was a little bit taken aback that anybody was listening or would care. And so that was a, a moment of like, you know, why is this news? Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. 
So what a bossy middle-aged lady said, this is a stupid idea. Um, so that was a moment of being uncomfortable, hmm. um, being out in the front and perplexed. Hmm. So that's Work getting, yeah, getting comfortable <laughs> with the voice. Yeah. But I think it's totally reasonable for when people say, when, when, you, when you say something very passionate about a certain subject and all of a sudden it's a revelation for people. Mm-hmm. And it and it resonates with them, and then they look to you for what else? What other wisdom can you give us, right? And it, it feels like a lot of responsibility. But I think it's equally as important to say, no, this is just an idea I have, and this is the job I do. And any person in any job can have these moments if they truly think about our lives and the things we want for ourselves. You know, I I I heard it on the way in. Someone said, Rakaya, when are you going to run for president? Yeah. And, Laughable. Well, I mean, I think the reason is, is that, you know, you have something to say that people really want to hear and they want that direction. I think, though, there's a combination of a person and then a moment. Yeah. And I also feel like in this moment, the the this is going to sound really academic, but people hate it when I say this word, but the orthogonal part of the square mm-hmm. from like mm-hmm. crazy MAGA dudes is like black woman wisdom. And there's a, I, f- I feel like people want a kind of healing and um, something else from me that is interesting, that's unique to this moment. Uh, we do a rapid round with our guests. Okay. So our questions, let's begin. A piece of advice you got that still inspires you? Mm, acquire power and then use it. A book that needs to be on our bookshelves. The Entrepreneurial State. A quote you try to live by. We may have come on different ships, but we're in the same boat now. Martin Luther King. Something you just learned that surprised you. New York City gets more inches of rain per year than Portland. And something about you that few people know. I was a DJ in college, and I had an R&B show in the middle of the night on Tuesdays. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us on Better Money. Thank you. Thanks, you guys. Thanks to Mandy, Jackie, and Rukaya for joining The Local, and thank you for listening to The Local, your hometown, in about 30 minutes. If you have story ideas, organization needs shouts out, you want to tell us an inspiring story, send us an email at thelocal at xray.fm. Let's stick together while we're apart, and thank you, democracy. Talk to you tomorrow. X-Ray.